1 Corinthians chapter 15. Please join me there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is our text this morning. It's found in verses 20 through 28. We're going to talk about God's redemptive resurrection plan. God's redemptive resurrection plan. God has a program, a, a plan that he has set in place before you and I were ever around. Before the foundations of the earth, God knew and planned and decreed things to be so. And 1 Corinthians 15, especially the portion we'll be looking at this morning, is very clear on helping us see what his program of events will be. What is the order in his redemptive resurrection plan? Who will rise first? Who will rise second? And what will take place throughout all of that? It's a very helpful passage. It's very clear. And I'm excited to be able to, honored and humbled to have the privilege to open up God's word and preach to you that this morning. I pray that you are listening carefully to God's word. That your hearts are open to what he has for us this morning. Let's go to prayer before we get any further. Father, thank you for your precious word. We have readily available to us so many copies of that, and yet it's reliable. We thank you for the, the, um, the preservation of your word so that we might hold it and accurately in all trust and faith see an accurate interpretation of what you have for us. Lord, thank you for the way the word impacts and changes our lives. Thank you for the wonderful joy and the hope that's seen in this long chapter in First, in first Corinthians 15. As we look at the verses this morning, Lord, we thank you for the clarity in which you lay out your redemptive resurrection plan for Christians. Thank you for the promise of a resurrected glorified body and eternal rejoicing with you one day guide us now lord i ask please as we work through your word grant us understanding so that we might apply these things to our life and living in jesus name amen you realize we live in an incredible time right now you don't hear that very often do you we really do. We live right now in an incredible time in history. Why? Because we live between the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of the redeemed. We're right in the middle of that. The next thing to take place after, at the rapture is the resurrection of those who have died before us. Those of us who will die before Christ's return, our bodies will be resurrected. That's what Paul has been talking to the Corinthians about. Remember, they're confused with this, with this um, Greek philosophy and denying the resurrection or the use or the need of a physical body after death. I noted before that Jesus taught, and he teaches in John 5, 28 and 29, Jesus teaches a resurrection of both the righteous and the unrighteous. But in the passage we're studying together in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul is carefully talking about the bodily resurrection of Christians in this passage. This passage is all about the resurrection of Christians. 
In fact, it's not even about Christ's resurrection. Christ's bodily resurrection is called into light and, and used as an illustration, but it's spoken of as if um, it's spoken of with the assumption that the readers and the original recipients of this letter understood and believed already in a easily believable resurrection bodily of Jesus Christ. And we studied that some time before in the first part of, the, of chapter 15. And we laid out, and Paul laid out for us all the different things in which if there was even a little glimmer of, 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 of doubt that you would look at these different things, all the people he showed himself to and the things that took place and so on, witnesses. And so he's writing to those with the assumption they already knew, even reminds him, he's like, remember what you believed once? Why are you even turning away from that? You know, what you believed that brought you into salvation, as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10. And so he's writing with this assumption here. And, and, and we saw last time in, in verses 12 through 19 when we were together, Paul listed the, the dismal, logical consequences to an illogical claim that Christ never rose from the dead or that Christians will never rise from the dead. Do you remember that? We laid out all the horrible consequences if there really indeed was an occupied tomb if Christ's body was still rotting in a tomb somewhere on this earth. And we know it is not. Scripture makes it clear that it's not. But now in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 28, his message is much more joyful. It's joyful. It doesn't carry the weight of the message last week. It is a joyful reality. And so in a positive way now, Paul writes of triumph while laying out God's redemptive resurrection plan that he has in place. And there is great hope. There is great joy to be had in knowing God's resurrection, uh, redemptive resurrection plan. There's great joy in that. If you're facing life and death of a loved one or, or the, the, the fear of the unknown of your potential death, if, if you have questions and doubts about eternity after physical death and what is God's plan and how does this work out and what are the sequence of events, oh, dear friends, I'm excited to tell you I have a joyful message for you this morning, a message filled of hope, as is the spirit of 1 Corinthians 15 as a whole. So look with me, look at verses 20 through 22 firstly, and we see the resurrection of the Redeemer. Let me remind you again, as Paul reminded the, Corinthi the Corinthians, Christians, the resurrection of the Redeemer. It's like shifting from a dismal fog of a dark night to the bursting rays of the morning sun. It's a transition from verse 19 to 20 in 1 Corinthians 15. Look at verse 20. It says uh, there in 15, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. This is the joyful hope. There's joy knowing that Christ has risen. And there is joy when we come to understand what Paul means by Christ becoming the first 
fruits of them that slept. The blessed truth is Christ rose from the grave and and the tense, the word tense here in Scripture is, is, is perfect. It's implying completed action. Something that has been done, it's completed. It's not a future coming event. It is done. It's been completed. There's no changing that. Christ has risen. It has been accomplished. Christ is the, look at there, verse 20. We just read the first fruits of them who have slept. Christ is the first fruits of them that, who have slept. You know, Jesus is the first of the coming resurrection. He's the first. Without his resurrection, there would be no bodily resurrection of you and me. But he was the first. Christ was the first. Colossians 1.18 says, He was the firstborn from the dead. Christ had to rise first. Christ, Christ did rise first. And because he did, we will, those who by the way, the word slept here it refers to the, uh, the death of the physical body. Nowhere in Scripture are we taught a soul sleep, a form of a holding place or purgatory, or a reincarnation in another body on earth again before Christ's return. Scripture does not teach that. Sleep here, the slept, refers to the death of the body. And Paul often used the word sleep as a euphemistic or a, a sort of idiom of death. Kind of a, a kind way to use other words. You and, this is familiar to you and me. The way in which Paul used the word slept to the Corinthians at that time would be like the way we would reference somebody who has gone home to be with the Lord. Someone has passed away. Someone has been promoted to glory, are terms we might refer to. This is like what Paul is doing here when he says slept. It's not like there's a soul sleep. It's not anything else other than the physical death of the body. And I can, I can show you this. Let me prove this to you. Go over to the Gospel of John, and we'll use Jesus' own words in interacting with his disciples about Lazarus, who died. And you'll see, this will become very clear to you, and if you have any doubt, I'm certain this will clear it up. John chapter 11, look at verse 11 through 14. And, and you remember the context here, right? Lazarus, a friend, a dear friend of Jesus, has died. And Jesus hears about this. He knows all things, but people tell him about this. And in response and interaction of going and, and, and being there with him, here's this dialogue, and it's going to teach us something. So begin in verse uh, 11. John chapter 11, the Gospel of John, 11, 11 says, These things said he, and after that he saith unto him, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth. Okay, there's a sleep word there, right? Same word as the other place. But I go, that I may awake him out of sleep. Have you ever woken somebody up from sleeping before? You know, they wake eventually. Some of us, it takes a little longer. My children know they try to stay out of arm's distance if they wake me from a sound sleep. Because I might come up flailing and gasping for air like I've been drowning or something. And my wife rolls her eyes and points out the drama. 
We know what it's like to, to wake somebody who has been sleeping. Look at verse 12. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Oh, not to worry. If he's sleeping, he'll, he'll do well. It's all right. It's all right. Verse 13 says, Howbeit Jesus spake of his death, they thought that he had spoken of taking of rest in sleep. Jesus is saying, no, this isn't a nap. This isn't a rest. This is death. And so Jesus uses both these words here to mean the same thing. Verse 14, he says, Then Jesus said unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. He is dead. He is not simply sleeping. He is dead. Paul uses the same type of language to reference a physical bodily death. Not a sleep here, but a death. And we all know that death came through one man, didn't it? It came through Adam, the sin of Adam and Eve. And through their sin, all mankind is born into sin and has inherited that Adam, first sin, nature. If you look at Romans chapter 5, let me show you a couple other passages here. Romans chapter 5. It's important to understand these things so we can clearly understand the text that we're studying. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verses 12 and then through 14, says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Verse 13, Romans 5. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned, after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. Then look at the first part of, skip down to verse 17. It says, for if by one man's offense, death reigned by one. By one man's sin, death reigned by one. This clears up the muddy waters a little bit when people say, well, I haven't ever sinned. Number one, I think we can open up God's word and make it very clear that every one of us has sinned and chosen to sin against God. Remember, sin is not sin because we perceive it to be sin. Sin is sin because God calls it sin. And through scripture, we can point that out. But it clears things up when we read a passage like this that says, whether or not they have violated a law or not, the very fact that they are born into the sin nature, they are, we are sinners. And so sin has entered the world by one man. And all the human race has inherited sin nature from Adam. So if death entered through man, through one man, it follows that the resurrection will come through man as well. Because that's God's miraculous plan. That's God's beautiful plan of provision for those who have sinned against him. Paul is carefully referencing the incarnation of Christ in 1 Corinthians 15. If you go back to our passage there, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, he's very careful to do this. He points this out. And in due time, 
through the God-man, in his human body, Christ arose, but in due time, following the resurrection of Christ, eventually, in God's perfect timing, the entire human race will also be raised from the dead. Some to judgment, as John 5, 28, 29 teaches, and some to eternal presence with the Lord in heaven. And so the resurrection then came through man, the God-man, the incarnate Christ, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The second Adam he is referred to, Jesus Christ. Verse 22, 1 Corinthians 15 and then verse 22 as well. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So, God's redemptive resurrection plan begins with the resurrection of the Redeemer. That's calendar appointment number one. It's been completed. The Redeemer has risen from the grave. There's another appointment on God's calendar in his redemptive resurrection plan. Paul makes it clear for us, if you turn your attention to verse 23 of our passage, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23, we see the resurrection of the redeemed. The resurrection of the redeemed. Verse 23 says, but every man in his own order, see here's this order of his plan, every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. First fruits. I want you to take note of that. Second time now we've mentioned this. First fruits. Look at that. Let's think about first fruits for a moment. First fruits would not have been a confusing reference to the Christians in Corinth. This would have made absolute sense to them. They would have had no stopping or asking what this meant. They would go, oh, first fruits makes sense to me. Moving on. That, that's a wonderful illustration. But you and me, a little bit further removed from what this is referencing, it gives us pause a little bit. So let me help you a little bit. The first fruits, when Paul speaks of this, is a, is, it's an Old Testament concept of an Old Testament practice. In fact, if you were to look at Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 10, Leviticus 23, 10, you would see, it would say there, ye shall bring a sheaf of first fruits of your harvest unto the priest. This is the middle of some instruction, Levitical instruction in Leviticus, in the Old Testament, on what the Jews were to do during a specific time as a result of the harvest that they, the Lord had provided. And during the feast of the unleavened bread at Passover time, the Jewish farmer would bring a small ripened sheaf of grain to the priest who would then wave it before the location of the presence of the Lord. Sounds kind of funny, right? Why would, why would they go through doing this? Why would they do these things? Why did, why did God want the first fruits of the harvest? Because he wanted the first and because he wanted the best. And in a righteous and holy and loving way, our God deserves that. 
And so it was an opportunity to demonstrate in obedience that the first of my crop will be the first and the best given to the Lord. And when they went through these actions, it was a promise that there was more to come. There was more to come behind the first and the best. This is not all of the crop. This is not all of the harvest. But it is the first, it is the best, and there was more harvest to come. This is what the Old Testament practice would be that Paul referenced here to help us understand what Christ's first resurrection is for the redeemed. Because when the first fruits came in, it was a guarantee that the rest was to come. And so in a sense, it guaranteed the rest of the harvest and your thinking should be going right where I suspect it probably is when we consider this 1 Corinthians 15 passage in light of this Old Testament reference, the first fruits. The resurrection of Jesus Christ then is a sign or a guarantee of the resurrection of the redeemed to follow because of his. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Because he is the first fruits, because he rose, the harvest of the redeemed to follow will also rise from the dead, Paul is communicating. His resurrection, Christ's resurrection, is the first fruits. It's just the first of the continuing harvest of bodies, those who are redeemed in their bodies. So, Christ raised from the dead is the first fruits and the guarantee of the reality of the resurrection to come. Come back again to that passage in Romans, and let's read the verses between what we read so far and see the other side of what Paul was writing to the, um, to the uh, Christians in Rome. Look back again at Romans, please. Find my place there. Romans chapter 5. Look at verses 15 and 16. It says, But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God, and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. Verse 16 says, And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. And now let's read verse 17 as a whole. Listen, for if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ, the first fruits of the redeemed, first fruit of the redeemed. And so the resurrection of the redeemed is the harvest of which Christ is the first fruit. Now, of course, Christ was not the only one. He's not the only or the first to rise from the dead. We read of others. I just pointed out Lazarus, and you're, you're uh, familiar with his account. If not, go there and, and study that. 
John 11. He's not the first, he's not the only to rise from the dead. But he was the only one to be resurrected and stay alive. Jesus Christ is the only one to be resurrected from the dead and to remain eternally living. The resurrection of Christian bodies will take place at the Lord's return, at Christ's second coming. In fact, go over to 1 Thessalonians and, and, and remember what this is to look like. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Picture what Paul is giving hope of in this wonderful passage of joy and hope. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 and 18. Just listen to this. This is the speaking of the return, the rapture. It may happen. Wouldn't it be great? Listen, wouldn't it be great if in the middle of reading this passage, the Lord returns today? <laughs> Are you ready? First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 says, But I would not have you be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. We understand, understand that to mean death. That you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with them. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. <laughs> oh, that will be glory for me. What a day. What a day. This is the guarantee of Almighty God through His inspired, inerrant, trustworthy scriptures. And these are the words that we are commanded by Paul and Thessalonians to comfort one another in. These are the words that Paul in Corinthians chapter 15 is saying don't be confused. Remember what the Lord has said. The dead in Christ will rise. He is not yet finished with your body. In whatever state, in whatever fashion, and I don't mean to be utterly grotesque this morning, in whatever way or fashion your body dies, whatever happens to it afterwards, it's nothing for the Lord to gather that up and to glorify that and transform it into a new Come back to 1 Corinthians 15, and we see here, when the resurrection occurs, we will receive our, um, our, our bodies will go with our already glorified spirits, reunited with the Lord, and we will then, at that point in time, take on the very form of the resurrected Christ, being 
like him. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 21 says, Who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body? So the next event in God's redemptive resurrection plan is the resurrection of the redeemed. First, it's the resurrection of the redeemer. Then it's the resurrection of the, de- the redeemed. And then lastly, we see in God's program through this passage, communicated in 24 through the rest down to 28, we see the redemption victory of the redeemer. All of this is victory over sin and death. Such a final reality in the world today is death. And we read of the reality of victory over death. Look at this. Verse 24. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. You know, the tragedy of death came through the man, Adam. But the triumph of the resurrection came through Christ, the God-man, Christ-man. In these verses, 24 and 28, Paul sketches a brief overview of eschatology. (laughs) These couple of verses are not easy to readily come to, I think, a helpful application. God's word, I think, is clear. And I thank God for the Holy Spirit's leading and for men that have gone before and studied and, and opportunities to study. But it is, it is a widely discussed and argued and debated section of Scripture. Let me give you the flyover of what, what I think I have found God's word to teach. What I believe God's word teaches on this. This overview of eschatology from the central perspective of the resurrection is what we're reading about here in 24 through 28. And we continue to see the sequence of of, of order to God's redemptive resurrection plan. Here's the next sequence in the order of events that are taking place here. Jesus Christ first was the first on in that order of sequence. Then he returns at the rapture, and the dead in Christ shall rise. We read about this in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. That's the next event. Then in verses 24 through 26, we see this, this, this victory take place, this proclamation of a victory take place, this handing everything back to God as if Jesus Christ is saying to himself, I have completed in obedience to the Father, in submission to the Father, I have completed what I have come to do, and it's all back to you now, Lord. I have finished, I have conquered, as we have planned. The next event, the end, 
I understand to be referenced a time in which Christ delivers up the kingdom to God. After the final rebellion in the battle of Gog and Magog, references to the evil ones, those involved in that battle. You can read Revelation 20, verses 7, 8, and 9. And it is at that time that Jesus Christ, Scripture says, shall put down, shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. And I understand this is when Satan is finally cast into the lake of fire once and for all. And he knows that day is coming. He knows that reality is coming. Not because Satan knows all things. He is not omniscient like our Lord is, but because he knows what the Lord has said in his word, as do we. Revelation 20 and verse 10 reminds us of this. When he shall be finally, once for all, cast into the lake of fire. And this is when. That time is when. The last enemy, death, will be destroyed once and for all. Once and for all, destroyed. Verses 27 and 28, as we were reading, Paul teaches us that there is one exception to all things being under Christ's feet. Wait a minute, there's an exception? <laughs> there's one exception. You see it there. One exception to all things being under Christ's feet. And the one exception is God the Father. Jesus has always been a submissive and an obedient son to the Father. And the day is coming when he, as the victor, will submit himself to the Father. As the last part of verse 28 tells us, that God may be all in all. The eternal Son is equal in every way to the Father. And yet he is lovingly submissive to the Father. That speak to your heart this morning? We can't avoid a lesson of humility and submissiveness exemplified perfectly in our Christ, our Savior. Example for us that the very same mind that was in Christ be in us. You can read about this in Philippians 2. May the very mind of Christ, the mind that is in Christ be in us. The type of mind that in humility coming to a, an earth where he knew sinful man would persecute, beat, and crucify him, and yet he willingly submitted himself to God's plan and went through every step and suffered like we suffered for us in our place, that's submission. That's humility. That's unconditional love. And so here's an example for us. A final submission, turning everything over to the Father and everything glorifying Him. Because Christ was the victory, because Christ had the victory, so do you and me have victory. 
Death has no eternal hold on us because of the redemptive victory of the Redeemer. Paul, time and time again, in Thessalonians, here in Corinthians, and over in the, in, in the latter part of the passage, we'll get to that. He says, encourage one another with this. Don't sorrow as if we have no hope over death. We will be reunited with those whom we love that are in Christ. Folks, the last event in God's redemptive resurrection plan is that physical death will be abolished forever. Just imagine that. Life is so short. It seems so long now. Life is so short now, and it's so prevalently filled with the reality of death. One day, those who are in him will experience eternity never, ever even considering death again. Dear church, Christ is alive right now. Christ is alive right now. He is coming again. And our bodies will be resurrected. Our bodies will be changed. They will be transformed to be like Him. And our eternal state, as I understand from God's Word, requires a body. And Jesus will give us one just like His. So many want to know the future. So many want to know what's going to happen. So many want to figure out what's going to happen with life and death and, and what happens in all these things. Look at the clear scripture, the word of God. God has laid out a clear, redemptive resurrection plan in which we are smack dab in the middle of and we will be part of. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for eternal life. Lord, thank you for the promise and the guarantee of the resurrection. Heavenly Father, I pray that each one would live in the light of the reality, the sure hope of one day those who are in Christ will be changed and will live with you for all eternity in Christ-like resurrected form. Lord, the reality of that ought to, oh, it bolsters hope. Love for you. Strength to continue on. We do not have to sorrow. We do live every day in light of your imminent return. Thank you for Christ, your son's resurrection, so that it guarantees our bodily resurrection. Lord, help this church to encourage one another with these words and others. Lord, I pray if there's anyone that doesn't know Christ as their Savior, that they would turn to you in repentance of their sin, acknowledging that they are a sinner inherently by Adam, and there's no amount of I'm a pretty good person or living a decent life that will guarantee forgiveness and eternal presence with the Lord. But repenting of that sin, placing our faith and trust in Christ and His work on Calvary alone for salvation. 
that is your free gift offered to whomsoever will. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.